Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. Uh, on the agenda this week, the editor of the Daily Mail quits amid swinging cuts at reach. Is the paper in serious trouble? Also on the program, the magic of drama. How did it become the cavalry to Mr. Bates and wronged sub-postmasters everywhere? All that plus in the Media Quiz, we consider the weekend news for Ed Balls, Carol Vorderman and John Oliver. Uh, that's all to come in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, the new CNN boss, Mark Thompson, has asked staff to recall the swagger and innovation of its formative years. Uh, the email to staff on Wednesday sets the tone for his vision for the ailing news giant, warning that the audience for cable television has fallen by a fifth in the past two years and that the website needs drastic modernisation. Uh, tributes have been paid to Annie Nightingale, uh, UK Radio's first main female DJ, who died this week at the age of 83. Uh, she was also the longest running presenter on Radio 1, having started in 1970 and presented a show as recently as December 2023. Incredible. Uh, And finally, the Metro made headlines on Thursday out of one of its own headlines uh, when it reported that the Met Office warns the UK will be double-fisted by deadly snow and ice. Uh, The Met Office felt compelled to clarify that it isn't a term uh, we'd use to describe the weather. Uh, Now joining me in the warmth and decadence of the London podcast studios, uh, we welcome back broadcast editor Chris Curtis. Hiya. Um, This week you posted... And I quote, In the age of limitless choice and streaming Nirvana, I spent last night happily flicking between 90-minute Love Island All-Stars and a rather good 2018 repeat of 24 hours in police custody, all whilst wishing away uh, 48 hours so that I can go and watch more Traitors. Is that TV today? No, it isn't. (laughs) Um, And my tongue was slightly in my cheek when I tweeted that. So what's happened is the years kicked off with three massive hits on terrestrial old-fashioned TV. So Gladiators did six million in overnights, which is kind of unheard of. I think Ian, Ian Highland said in old money, that's 15 million. I mean, it's proper ratings, proper appointment to view ratings. So well done to the uh, to Hungry Bear and MGM and the BBC for that. So big hit. Um, Mr. Bates, huge hit for ITV. Uh, um, and everyone's talking about that. It's really, really cut through. And The Traitors, obviously, is a big, big smash for... The BBC One as well. So these, all these shows kind of bubbling up and people are starting to say, oh, it's a, it's a renaissance. It's, a, you know, linear TV is back. And the truth is, no, not really. Um, if you have brilliant shows, then people will watch it. And you, the, what the PSBs can do and what traditional British broadcasters can do is have the perfect combination of a kind of linear shop window and iPlayer, ITVX, whatever the platform is in the background to boost those numbers up. And Mr. Bates, which is the biggest show of all of them, you know, a third of its viewers watched linear and mm. two-thirds of them came online. But in a sea of endless content, my tweet was, like I say, slightly facetious, but in the end, it's helpful to have someone navigate all the TV content that's out there for you. And that that is definitely has huge value. And there's there's something in scheduling, isn't there? I mean, both both Mr. Bates, um, sort of straight after Christmas, before you've really kind of got into the rest of uh, the, the year, it did really well to be stripped across a week straight after Christmas. Yep. And then um, uh, when we think about traitors, quite clever first week is all available on iPlayer. Then it's Wednesday, yep. Thursday, Friday, and proper people waiting for yep. Wednesday. Yes. And if you can do that, if you can get a sense of everyone watching at the same time which is an advantage that actually you know even the likes of netflix 
struggle to sort of replicate, then you can have something incredibly powerful. But stripped programming is nothing new. Mm. I'm a celebrity who's been on air for uh, you know well over a decade, um, and it's always stripped. Love Island is stripped over the summer. It's you know ratings are tailing off a little bit at the moment, but that's been a show that ITV's managed to to bring viewers back to time and time again. So it's a mixture of good old-fashioned high-quality content, good old-fashioned clever linear scheduling, and then adding to the mix clever release patterns for online and amplifying all those things together. Well, speaking of someone that's clever, uh, Charlotte Tobit, uh, next to Chris um, uh, from the Press Gazette. Uh, You've been digging into the New York Times beef with open AI. Yeah, it's been a great one to get stuck into for the start of the year. The New York Times basically saying loads millions of their articles has been uh, taken um without permission by OpenAI and Microsoft's people people keep talking about OpenAI and Microsoft's part of it as well because they're in such a partnership with OpenAI about the development of ChatGPT and using it in Bing etc interestingly this week um OpenAI CEO Sam Altman has basically said well we're not that bothered we don't need New York Times one individual content provider isn't that important to us but obviously it's really more of a precedent setting thing and whether OpenAI can argue it's fair use because it's a transformative use of these news publishers' content, whereas they're obviously saying if everyone just gets everything they need from ChatGPT, then we're not going we're gonna lose out from subscriptions revenue, advertising revenue because people aren't coming, to, don't need to come to the site, um, affiliate revenue when they're just stripping out wire cutter reviews, um, also affects trust um, because. Uh, there can be hallucinations, um, for example, saying that Wirecutter has recommended products that it hasn't. So there's a whole load of potential impacts and um, it'll be a major case. But uh, equally, Condé Nast CEO Roger Lynch has said, told US um, Congress that um, during the time the New York Times case plays out, because obviously it'll be a while, unless they settle, many, many media companies could liquidate because that's how serious threat it poses. Uh, and also, will, will we see that, as you say, spread to other publishers? Will they lose all of their content providers uh, if the New York Times and the BBC have also said they're not so keen on their stuff being Yeah, if everyone well? takes a stand, then they don't have any content. They can't just be like, well, one doesn't matter. Well, a lot of them agree with each other. So, yeah. uh, Well, changing times from the New York Times to what they would refer to as the Times of London. Um, Alex Farber, media editor, uh, joins us. What have you been working on this week? What's been keeping you busy? So, what would I say? What's been interesting is Amal Rajan. There's been a bit of a debate around diversity on television this week, I would say. Um, so um, Amal Rajan came out and said, you know, that he reveres the, the white, pale, male, stale um, presenters. This is kind of the context being him taking over from Paxman, obviously, on, on University Challenge. What's interesting about this is there's been a few schools of thought. Obviously, Amal's come in, taken over this position. Clive Myrie also said that it's important that the BBC reflects and diversity in all of its shapes and forms. Obviously, he came in to take to, to um, mastermind. So we've had, on one hand, we've had Amal saying, look, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. In TV's drive to become more diverse, we shouldn't get rid of all the things that those older statesmen like do bring to the table. At the same time, you've got Clive Myrie saying, you know, um, it's important that those things are reflected. And also, interestingly, Sandy Toxvig, QI host, she was also out there this week talking about the fact that there's a, a dearth of female chat show hosts. You know, I think almost coincidentally that happened this weekend. There was a little bit of a, of a furore. Some of those big shows we talked about earlier that Chris was mentioning. There was a whole night on, uh, on Saturday night in which all of the hosts of some of the BBC and ITV's biggest shows were all men. Mm. So there's something going on in diversity. What do I think? I mean, fundamentally, there's been a huge push towards ensuring that the broadcasters are increasingly diverse on screen. And I think that they've made great gains in that. I think the BBC, something like 28% of its on-screen appearances are from non-white individuals. Um, So clearly there's been some significant gains made there. Amos warning about that going too far. But at the same time, we've got others saying, come on, look, there's still work to be done here. And it's not job done when it comes to making sure that all types of people are fairly represented on screen. We start this week with news that Alison Phillips has quit as the Mirror's editor. This follows news recently that Reach has cut over 700 jobs. It did in 2023. Um, Charlotte, she was very well liked by everybody, wasn't she? 
Yeah, very much. She'd been editing the Mirror for uh, almost six years and she'd been at Reach or for, uh, formerly Trinity Mirror a long, long time, since the late 90s, I think it was. There have been some reports that she, um, in the recent redundancy round, she was trying to encourage some of her staff not to take voluntary redundancy because she really cared about the team and wanted to keep them. And so it was a bit of a shock for a lot of people, I think. But um I understand she hasn't taken voluntary redundancy herself, which um, some have reported it as being like that. But um, I think it's obviously it's still right to put it in context of a lot of changes at the publisher over the past year. Um, there are other senior people at the Mirror and other nationals and regionals that have left as a result. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a big time. Chris, why do you think she's off? Uh, is it just that she's not happy with what's been going on? It's just harder to do, harder to do a job? It's not my core area of expertise, but what I would say is if you're trying to lead an organisation, that organisation is being reshaped pretty brutally, then um, you need to make a decision about whether that's something you want to be part of or not. And and, and also, let's be, let's be clear, if Charlotte's understanding is she hasn't taken voluntary redundancy mm. and she's leaving... We know what that means. It means that they've, they, you know, they, they've asked her to move on, and you know that that happens. An incredibly well-respected figure in, in in Fleet Street. There are not loads of Fleet Street editors who are very popular with their mm. staff. I would necessarily uh, sort of say, and 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 she's part of it. But look, that's overall, you've got an organisation just just going through huge, huge change, and the drive to digital, you know, is 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 a key factor in that. But those levels of redundancies you, you, you talked about is remarkable. I mean, Alex, her successor, Caroline Waterston, she's been around Reach for quite a long time. Mm. What's going to be in her in-tray for 2024? Well, I think there's some concerns that what will be in her in-tray is more cuts. And I think that people look at the online side of the business, which is something that she's been responsible for and that Reach is particularly, not particularly well regarded in and there is um, some concerns that the same will effectively happen on the newspaper side and that ultimately you know we might see um, quality eroded my understanding is a lot of staff looked up to the editor looked up to Alison because you know she was a woman she spent a lot of time furthering women's careers um, she mentored took time out she was very approachable so she was definitely well liked and you know any change brings with it uncertainty and you know I think staff piled on top of the job cuts that we've heard about last year you know there's definitely nervousness as we look into 24 for uh, for mirror group i mean charlotte we're sort of back to there being no good news really in i mean reach is this kind of odd kind of hybrid national local publisher obviously other local publishers have had a lot of trouble um a lot of redundancies there's not a lot of good news coming out of fleet street is there yeah, so I've done some other sort of financial stories about these publishers the last couple of weeks. And DC Thompson, which um, is a big Scottish publisher, um, revenue down a bit, but the area of optimism is digital subscriptions. It's exactly the same at Isleaf Media, which is kind of a smaller regional publisher, but they're expanding what they're doing online. And Reach have been quite slow on the digital subscription side, haven't they? So last year they began um, some more experiments with like paid for premium newsletters and ad-free apps for um, some of the big regionals like Manchester Evening News and Liverpool Echo, even a bit of ad-free uh, on the Daily Express. Whereas a lot of the industry is, as we're saying, talk about about subscriptions and other engagement metrics. Um, uh, Reach CEO Jim Mullen did emphasise in a note to staff this week about why page views are still so important and basically saying having the scale still gives them the best opportunity to pursue those other opportunities You can just well. squeeze in another ad banner somewhere over the content of a Reach website. Yeah, and journalists um, hate that. You know, I did a piece last week about about um, some of the concerns in the wake of the job cuts. And, you know, there's definitely concerns about the impact on audiences and this sort of race to the bottom. And they look at... <laughs> They look local is undoubtedly a challenged market, and you know Reach can point to the to the BBC, for example, and say, look, that you know it makes operating in this space very difficult. But I'm not sure that some of their other local rivals have suffered the same amount of problems as they have. And so staff are saying, well, look, these other guys are managing to get it right, or certainly are not suffering as much. So what is it that's going wrong here? And I do think that a lot comes down to the to the user experience and the ambition to try and squeeze every last drop out of every last click. Uh, well, we've mentioned it already. I mean, ITV scored their biggest drama series uh, in years and changed the fortune of hundreds uh, of sub-postmasters, hopefully, uh, with Mr. Bates versus the post office. I mean, Chris, this has been a big hit, as we've mentioned already, for, for ITV. Yeah. And look, it's... Um 
a lot a lot of people have already made this point. It kind of reaffirms your belief a little bit in kind of the power of good old British telly. Mm. Um, because the challenge is, you know, the, the Netflix of this world are unlikely to create a series for an individual market with a story like this. Yes. So there's a few things. One is factual-based drama has been a mainstay of British telly for, yeah. for many, many years. And there are lots of good examples where, and actually it's kind of, you know, it's very relevant for what we're talking about. Essentially, what did they do? They built off amazing journalism, years and years of amazing journalism, lots of research. And what the drama was able to do was make the average person, in the, you know, average member of the British public feel the relatability of this story in a way that, if I'm honest, you look at it and the, the fantastic re- reporting on it, that hadn't quite cut through in the same in the same way. Um, and another interesting thing is ITV, the, uh, broadcasters will always tell you before a show launches, oh, we, we don't know if this will hit or not. It's very difficult to judge. They knew. <laughs> they knew before. I saw a little bit of it before Christmas and I was chatting to a few ITV staff and they knew with that cart, you know, a bit amazing ensemble cast, heartland subject matter for them that sort of relatability that feeling when you watch it of that could happen to me i'm going about my life i'm doing nothing wrong and all of a sudden forces beyond your control sort of take over it's very powerful mix and so i think brilliant script brilliant bit of research fantastic story heartland january's a good time to launch a drama it's bloody cold no one's going out all of those things come together very powerful I mean, Charlotte, you uh, listed some of the the, the journalism timeline uh, around the, the post office story, and Nick Wallace, kind of friend of the show, I saw him interviewed a few times uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, and he was sort of saying, you know, it was a tough story to get people's head round. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the fact that it started in Computer Weekly, you know, a quite a dense specialist um, investigation, and. Um, uh, the reporter there who did the very first story, Rebecca Thompson, said um, that she expected it to get a lot more pickup um, because other Computer Weekly investigations had done and it just didn't. And she was quite disappointed and disillusioned. But then um, after she left the title, one of her colleagues, Carl Flinders, who I spoke to, picked up the mantle and he literally did hundreds of stories over the next decade or, or 15 years Um and so he kept it going, you know, um, heard from different postmasters. And during that time, other people gradually did as well. So Nick, as you say, various BBC outlets and Private Eye, um, Richard Brooks um, has done it. And there was a really nice note from Alan Bates in Private Eye this week, kind of thanking them and saying that they should be saying, I told you so. Um, so it's really nice. And yeah, it's just an amazing thing and kind of making people realise especially the value of specialist titles but um, as Chris said that doesn't mean that journalists you know screwed the pooch or whatever it just means that drama connected with people in a different way but they wouldn't the drama wouldn't have been able to do that without the journalism that came first. Uh, Alex you've been writing about um, kind of cuts in drama commissioning Uh, do you think a success like this uh, makes all the channels think again a little bit about where their money's going? Well let's certainly hope so I mean yeah as, as Chris pointed out and it's not just drama you know the, the the PSBs, the, the traditional terrestrial broadcasters are squeezed across the board at the moment. And, you know, so what do they do? They look further afield for their funding. They look to international partners. And one issue with a very domestic story, as you said, is that, that international partners are not necessarily thinking, well, you know, this is a story about sub-postmasters and, 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 a, and a software glitch. It's not the sexiest on the page. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think the appetite for commissioners in the UK for such stories is here and as, as Chris referenced you know we've got a long track record ITV and the BBC of of, of um, taking on these big factual dramas you know let's hope that the broadcasters see clear to perhaps fully funding I mean maybe that's a bit ambitious but certainly putting in more money backing themselves a little bit more because look one would imagine that the post office will sell now you'd have thought that there'll be a market for that, despite its English, despite its very British subject matter, that, you know, a streamer or, or, or a German or a French or an Australian broadcaster might pick it up because it's become such a big story. You know, easy to say, you know, after the event, but, you know, let's, it would be great if there was more money and it would make producers' lives who are trying to get these important stories off the ground much easier. The other big drama that's getting a, a lot of coverage at the moment uh, is from ITV Studios, but is on Netflix, uh, which is For Me Once. Have you all seen For Me Once? Have any of you seen Fool Me Once? I've watched Fool Me Once. Um, I watch a lot of television. It is very schlocky, um, but is a a massive hit for them. 
so elevated mainstream is the kind of buzz term that people are talking about <laughs> at the moment. And yeah, 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 you're right to sort of chuckle. Essentially, what what's happened? The streamers want profitability, right? And actually, they're moving away from high end. Their aspiration previously, possibly, was to be the new HBO, right? Mm, to have mm. all the shows that won all the awards. And now what do they want? They want all the shows that attract all the eyeballs. And there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't be snotty or sneery about it all. And um, this is a really good example of elevated mainstream where it looks like an ITV drama with more cash, yes, basically. Um, and... Um, Kitchen Island drama is another phrase that's been used, where it's very aspirational. Very, everyone's got lovely houses and amazing cars and drives a Tesla. But, you know, it's a very British cast. So what it's got is a big name author, sold loads and loads of copies of their books. And actually, they've made several of these. They always do really well. Uh, Richard Armitage, Michelle Keegan, Nicholas Schindler's a fantastic producer. So what does it tell you? It tells you again that relative traditional British drama, very well made, uh, can cut through in a, in a massive way. But I would argue, I've written about it for, for the, uh, um, this month, Fool Me Once is a huge hit. It's doing really well. People are not talking about it in quite the same way as they're talking about Mr. Bates or The Traitors. Mm. And that's partly because in a world in which the traditional British broadcasters are under immense pressure from all sides, they still have a window. They still have the ability to connect with people in a way that even the mighty Netflix finds hard to replicate. I'd also say, Michelle Keegan, a lovely selection of coats. Lovely selection of coats it's in Fool Me like Once middle class well. fever dream. Yes. Um, uh, over S4C, we've covered S4C quite a bit on the show over the last few months because I feel it kind of goes under the radar. Uh, this is the Welsh PSB. It's had another change at the top. Chair Rodri Williams uh, is not going to stand again uh, when his term ends at the end of March, uh, despite telling MPs he would stay on just last week. I mean, Chris, S4C just seems a mess what is going on there are legal cases pending right there's two <coughs> sean and linos who you know left the organization um and are disputing the way in which they've left the organization so it's incredibly complex but that decision now in terms of the chair not staying on for a second term it, it, it sort of speaks to a recognition that there needs to almost be a clean break um now what that means for the legal cases, who, who knows how those will, will pan out. But at the moment, it kind of feels from a distance as though S4C, uh, a, a, a fresh start in terms of the organisation and the operations is required, and that will allow the due process to take place on the other challenges and, and, and we'll see what comes out of those. I mean, Alex, the government are always sort of obsessed with the BBC and what the BBC is doing. Um, I mean, we sort of hear that Lucy Fraser at DCMS hadn't met Roger Williams sort of during the crisis. Um, are they going to have to sweep in and try and clear up some of this mess as well? Well, I think for as long as possible, the DCMS attempted to kick it all onto S4C and say, look, it's not a matter for them. It's a matter. For, it's their own organisation. We're not responsible for operational matters. Um, you know, Which they, doesn't stop them getting involved with BBC operational matters, does it? No, certainly not on the QT. But you alluded to it in your intro there, Matt. You know, it slightly goes under the radar. It's a Welsh language station. You know, it, it's, it still takes £90 million of, of licence fee funding, um, but it's not the BBC. It's not taking £3.5 billion pounds of licence fee funding. Um, so, you know, I think they're just hoping to steer clear of it. It doesn't have the same profile. There has been some coverage in the press of the events, which one could argue could make um, the next ITV or Netflix drama themselves. Um, At least they'd be bilingual. It would be bilingual. There's a big market. They, you know, that's one of the things they talk about, you know, mm. exporting the Welsh language. And that's one of the, the, the things that they're holding up as, as the role that they play. But, you know, it's as I think Chris is completely right. You know, it hasn't gone well. No one's covering themselves in, in particular glory. You know, it's an unfortunate situation for a lot of individuals involved. And, you know, the best thing, you know, at the end, let's not forget, there's, there's producers out there that are reliant on S4C for funding. And this instability doesn't make their lives any easier and i think lots of people will be hoping you know within and outside the organization will be hoping for a return to some form of stability as quickly as possible uh, thanks and we'll be back with more media news after this hello it's matt dancona here and it's matt Curley here from the two mats podcast and this week we have been talking about the mirror 
editor resigning and also about the spectator and telegraphs and we think this is a very important media story we do we've got some interesting thoughts which will add to the discussion you've been having on the media podcast so do drop in and we return to Fleet Street for our deep dive this week, a look into how local journalists, many of whom have been made redundant as the sector declines, are building their own platforms. Uh, Rob Smith was a journalist at the Burton Mail for many years uh, and has been looking into this for us. Here's Rob. Obviously, it is a tough time for anybody in local and national journalism. We've seen across whatever newspaper group or media group there's, there's been cuts across 2023 and 2024, unfortunately, doesn't look much better. But I've been looking over the last couple of months and thinking, well, actually, I think there are real green shoots of positivity for the future. I'm not saying that, you know, the local and national media landscape is perfect and it's not going to result in more job cuts. But I think there are things that stand out with the with the advent of the likes of podcasts, YouTube, and especially things like newsletters via Substack that really show that I don't think local news especially is dead. And I think there is a route where in 5, 10, 15 years, we're actually going to probably have quite a really vibrant local news scene that's probably better than it's ever been than in the last, say, 10, 20 years. Uh, well, let's talk about some of them. Should we start maybe in the Midlands, in Birmingham? Yes. Yeah, so um, um, for those who don't know, recently um, the uh, a, a group called The Mill that have got successful operations uh, in several other places in the country have launched a Birmingham edition, the Birmingham Dispatch. Um, already got quite a few subscribers, whether it be free or paid. And one of the things that they've identified, like they have done in other parties, is a real need for strong local journalism. So that's not to say that it's it's about councils or it's about specific things. It's about getting to the heart of what their community, in this case Birmingham, really wants to know and, and talk about. And, and that's resulted in a really great operation. Only a couple of months old, but a newsletter that drops into your inbox every couple of weeks, um, twice a, a week. And within that, some great stories where they expand on you know, whether it's in Birmingham, the, the the crisis with the local council or getting to the heart of meeting people in local communities. And I think things like this just showcase that, A, there is a want and need for that kind of journalism and, B, that it can be done in a sustainable way that people can easily pick up, whether you're 14, 40 or 80, and, and gives me real hope for the future that these stories won't be lost. I mean, the Birmingham one, the dispatches is Joshy Herman, who's kind of leading that one. Uh, I was involved in kind of middle media and the first Manchester thing. Um, there is something about brand, isn't there? And I think sometimes you know, local newspapers, a bit like local radio, you have a, a heritage which is in some ways good, but also it can be sort of a millstone around your neck, can't it? Of like, it's what your mum and dad used to read rather than what's relevant to your lives today. Yeah, especially I think with the advent of, you know, you don't want to be like an old man pointing at clouds kind of person, but it, it is what you've grown up with. And I think hopefully these kind of local news brands that are emerging, which have that kind of a bit of a, a tech feel to them, a bit of a kind of brought up in that industry, can hopefully really engage with that kind of audience. But at the same time, bring along people who've had that heritage, whether it's been with like a, a Birmingham Mail or a BBC Radio Derby, and build up that audience. There's no reason why it shouldn't. People have got such a strong appetite for local news and wanting to know what happens in their area. With just a bit of support, I don't see why they can't be as popular or stick in the mindset as much as a Birmingham Mail has or a Derby Evening Telegraph in the past. Also, there's um, the lead, which uh, they seem to be um, quite bullish and launching a lot of new titles. Yeah, well, obviously the news has come recently that they're launching 10 um, titles, very centred centered around the north. But again, like you say, a great word is, is bullish. And, and I think a commitment and a, and a want to, again, show that the, that need for what people want, um, that it, it is there. And it's not just long reads. It's not just stuff that people think, oh, it's never been covered before. It's it's really getting to the heart of community stories and, and picking up where perhaps potentially there have been left a gap by current local newspaper groups where resources have been put, journalists have been put. So they have to be very different in the way that they look at a news list. Whereas these organisations such as The Lead or The Mill can really take a step back talk to their communities and their readers and really get an insight into what they want to hear about and then produce good, strong quality journalism. And so there's quite a big difference, isn't there, with what traditional uh, local news is doing, which is sort of volume, you know, quite a lot of um, that's you know, driven by page views um, or, uh, and you know, ad impressions on those pages. So you sort of need to sort of cover everything can be volume driven, whereas a lot of these are, you know, once a week, twice a week, newsletter driven, where they're trying to round up something in a kind of one hit rather than trying to get people to open a gallery of 20 pages. Yeah, and I think I think that's really important, especially when you're looking to tackle, you know, particularly big issues. So say something that 
will, will not potentially drive page views, which is, you know, for example, in the Midlands, the ongoing crisis with the with the council. The council mm. there. Um, it's something where people can potentially save it in their inbox, take it a weekend, take that time to read it and digest it and actually understand. And then if they want the quick hit, they can use local radio, local media to get perhaps what they, you know, the fact that council tax is going up, I really need to know how much in my area, what that means to me. But at the weekend, I've got this dropped in my inbox where I can go, well, how does that affect me, my next door neighbour, the man down the street, local business, the local area as a whole. And I think that's why it's really important that it's serving a different kind of audience and hopefully kind of re-educating people in a way that this is what news can be in a different format. You can get bite-sized chunks, you can get stuff off X, off threads, etc. but you can also have this and it becomes part of your media diet. And I think that's really important. In what, in I think what's, especially stuff like the mail and um, the leader doing and other Substack newsletters is where it becomes what is traditionally what a Saturday and Sunday paper would be for some people, mm. where they take that time to sit, to relax, have a coffee, have a bite to eat, and really indulge in it and, and enjoy the experience again. You know, enjoy the experience of being able to digest news. I mean, any business that you're starting, whether it's a, a corner shop or, or a content business, you need to invest something into it. And that's both money, money and time. Um, how many subscribers do you think you know, for some of these sub stacks? Um, you don't necessarily need loads of subscribers to start kind of covering your costs. Do you You're sort of thinking, you know, if you're charging a, a five or a month, that's maybe at a thousand subscribers. That starts to be pretty good for a single kind of operator. Yeah, I think you only have to see over the last couple of years, you've seen even some major columnists from national newspapers who've taken the route, who've, who've left papers for whatever reason and jumped onto Substack. And they've only got between, you know, some some of them 250 to 1,000 followers and charging quite a low level. But they're making it enough income to su- support themselves, but also they're enjoying that freedom and that engagement with readers. So I, I don't think people have to think that they're going to have to be all of a sudden trying to attract 100,000 people or a quarter million people. It's about starting slowly, having a bit of a, a brand recognition, having a presence on social media, having something to say in a real confident and you know, you know, manner, and um, and then understanding that it's a building block process. So once you've started, it's about raising awareness, perhaps doing a bit of marketing, using a few skills, perhaps in public relations. And what I look at it from the outside, I think it's quite exciting for people. If you've got them brilliant skill set that you've honed as a journalist, you can then use them to do so many different avenues. And like you said. All of a sudden, it doesn't have to take a lot of people to be engaged with your brand and your product to be making quite a nice little bit of income, which you can then reinvest to potentially then adding a podcast or a YouTube show. And all of a sudden, you've used some great time and effort that you've put in through your training and your original years in the business to create a little niche for yourself. And there's no reason why that can't be replicated in little bolt holes across the country, whether it be on a sport, whether it's reporting on local news or even even business, where it's, I think business journalism at a local level, there is a lot of scope to build and, and do a great work there just with little investments and using that knowledge that people have gained through journalism. And again, why I come back to the say that it's exciting. That was Rob Smith. You can hear more from Rob over on our Patreon feed where you can catch up on dozens of interviews uh, from the past year of the show. Just head to patreon.com slash media pod, patreon.com slash media pod. It's a great way for you to support what we do here every week, patreon.com slash media pod. We'll be back with more media talk though after this. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chris Charlotte and Alex are back for some more news in brief. And over at Channel 4, the chief there, Alex Mahn, started the year warning of deep cuts to in-house staff. Um, Alex, how many are we talking about here? Around 200 people, I think they've said. That's quite That's quite a big chunk of, of Channel 4's headcount. It's quite a big chunk. You know, it's an organisation that's got 1,200 people or so in it. So, you know, 200 is one in six or so that could be potentially affected by these changes. Um, you know, one could argue it's been a long time coming. I'm not sure any... This didn't come out of a clear blue sky. You know, Channel 4's been warning that it's struggling... Um, it's obviously it's got an ad funded model so all of its income effectively comes from advertising and over the last 12 18 months the advertising market has been very challenged you know itv has also had difficulties um so you know no one is particularly surprised that it has come to this but, it's, but chris it's difficult isn't it with these cuts they had a big push into uh, launching offices uh, in leeds but also in other parts of the country too um, it's quite hard to say hey we're going to be everywhere when we're going to see a load of cuts, or are all these just going to come out of London? The suggestion is that the majority of the cuts will come out of London, um, because I think that the uh, the relocation uh, narrative and the sort of idea of Channel Four as a uh, as a broadcaster that reflects and represents and is uh, present in um, cities across the UK has been so integral to it over the last... I mean, that's been, that drive's been going on for four or five years. So I don't think they're going to pull the rug out from under that with, with significant cuts. What that does, of course, is, you know, it's one in six of your total workforce. If you're a Channel 4 employee in London, it's possibly going to be more than one in six. And when you think about what that does to a workforce is very very unsettling and channel 4 will be doing their best to work this through as promptly as possible i would suspect um because they know that there are folk going into work um at the moment who are deeply concerned about about the future yeah and i and i think what's what's particularly you know galling is that this comes not long after they've argued successfully that they are sustainable and shouldn't be privatized and i think that that really you know makes has raised some questions among some people as to whether that argument was ultimately correct. You know, they are trying to diversify. Um, They have got the ability to move into production now, which would give them another different um, revenue stream. And ITV, you know, we look at ITV, more than half of its revenues now come from its studios. You talked about the Netflix drama that it makes and the post office drama Mm -hmm. it also made and many others. So, you know, uh, let's hope that Channel 4 is able to, you know, leverage that and make use of that in-house production capability without, you know, killing off a big section of the, a big proportion of the independent production community. I mean, Chris, Alex Marn and um, uh, Ian Katz have been there quite a long time. They've had quite a good run uh, of being running programming and, and being CEO. Um, they successfully dealt with the, all the issues surrounding privatisation. They've got these changes now. Is their time running out of the business? Uh, is the indie community asking maybe encouraging there to be some changes look the historically if you look at how long channel four chief execs stay in post it's often sort of seven years sort of you know seven eight years kind of feels like a, a sort of average duration um it's been a difficult period and it's undoubtedly true that the commissioning slowdown which was the sort of defining theme of 2023 for the television industry in the UK. Uh, it came hot on the heels of the indie community, the production sector, sort of going into bat for Channel 4. So that, the timing of that, in terms of the relationship between the indie sector and Channel 4, couldn't have been worse. It is worth saying that the the state of the ad market is beyond the control of any organisation. Mm. ITV was out there last year giving a commentary on this, saying this is the worst ad recession since 08, basically. Um, so it is not in, in isolation. It is being buffeted by these forces. And the 
uh, visibility of the ad market. The ad market didn't behave last year like people thought that it would. Lots of different economists and forecasters, their predictions didn't didn't come to pass. So huge pressure, massive challenges. Whether that means there's change at the top remains to be seen. There's actually been a lot of stasis at the top of British television for a long, long time. If you look at creative leaders, I mean, these are these are the, these are the big beasts. These are, they're excellent, high quality, incredibly talented, smart people. But Charlotte Moore, Kevin Ligo, uh, Zai Bennett at, at, at Sky, they've all been in post longer than, than, than Ian Katz has. So I don't think it necessarily follows that there'll be a regime change. But Channel 4, it's fair to say, is... The it, there is so much focus now on does the ad market pick up? Are they going to get back to commissioning in earnest? And how are they going to navigate the job cuts that are coming down the line? The extent to which that impacts on creative um, uh, decision making teams. Well, just kind of staying on indies, uh, the BBC have revealed the beneficiaries of their small indie fund. This is fifty-seven uh, production companies have received cash from the BBC. Um, it's great that more cash is going into smaller TV production companies all around the country, isn't it? Super important. Um, strong regionality amongst that. You know, they're, they're they're making sure they're backing companies up and down the UK. It's bloody tough at the moment. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the media podcast. Of it's bloody tough. I think, that's the, I think that's the polite description of how tough it, it is. is. It's really challenging. And so when organisations like the BBC are in a position to um, help support smaller companies in particular, it's really great that it does. In the end, what matters for those companies is business. Hmm. Um, and... It's a bit like the debate always about schemes and initiatives and people say, I don't want a scheme or initiative, I want a job. If you're a small indie, do you want to be on the small indies fund? You absolutely do. But what do you hope to get out of that? As much as the money, you hope to build a relationship with the BBC, a bit of FaceTime, a bit of creative rapport, bring your best ideas, try and win a commission. And also you want to stop being a small indie. That's the other thing. Um, Charlotte, do you think there's, there's room for... Uh, these sorts of schemes in in news around the UK? Is there a different way to bring in money uh, to some of these broadcasters? We've you know heard about uh, new startups, um, things like the Manchester Mill. Is should there be cash made available in a in a similar way for maybe some people who used to work at Reach or other or other places to start up their own news organisations? No, that's a really interesting question because there have been there have been more Manchester Mill esque things starting mm. up. I think even last week, uh, Blackpool got a new newsletter this called is from the Blackpool the Lead. Lead. Yeah, uh, yeah. But um, I guess the question is, who's the money going to come from? Because mm. you don't want it linked in any. Well, lots of people wouldn't want it linked in any way to government. BBC obviously has done things where they funded like the. Um, local democracy reporters and Meta has funded community news reporters and local but um, they've pulled that funding as part of their big move away from news but I think the NCTJ who ran it for them are still looking for more funding I think that that would be great to continue because that's so important in getting kind of what could be otherwise underreported stories but I mean yeah I think I think the um, landscape across the UK would really benefit from being able to support these new um, news, not just newsletters. A lot of them that we talk about are newsletters. Um, I guess, yeah. I just, I just don't know who would be the right person or organisation to do that. Well, speaking of money, um, the BBC have made some money uh, this week. Um, they're going to be selling Elstree Studios, uh, where it makes uh, EastEnders and also Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, they're going to lease it back, so they'll still be uh, producing EastEnders from there. Um, uh, Alex, uh, how much do we know how much the BBC got for all of this? I think it's about £70 million, Matt. Um, and, you know, from a from a day-to-day perspective, it won't make too much difference. You know, they're going to continue to operate the base, as we said. Um, you know, it provides them with a little bit of cash at a time when they're desperate for as much money as they can get. You know, get it off the books, maybe take away some overheads. Um, and as the BBC looks to become a more efficient, lean organisation, perhaps it does make sense that it takes away some of those big heavyweight fixed costs and gets them off its books and, and is able to operate on a bit more of a of a nimble a nimble a nim, in a nimble basis uh, well chris i mean there's a huge amount of studio investment happening um around elstree i mean hertfordshire is turning into a uk's hollywood um loads of investment and obviously the the new acquirers of elstree have said that they're interested in expanding it too the explosion in studio space across the uk has been remarkable and Overall, you would say it's a good thing. 
Definitely. It increases the UK's capacity to host, particularly inward investment, like international shows being made here. And the skill set and the skills base that we have in this country is exceptional. And <clears throat> you can definitely, for example, make shows for American audiences in the UK cheaper than you can make them in the US and to at least as high quality and potentially better. So all of that is fantastic. There is the era of peak TV, I think, is done now. Uh, you know, the the recalibration of the streamers um, that are now chasing profitability rather than subscribers. I don't think we're going to see spending patterns in the next 10 years in quite the same way as we've seen them. Because uh, a, the, a lot of the investment and the Netflix investment was we are worried we're going to run out of studios to make this stuff. Precisely. And I think that potentially we're going to be making less telly overall in the coming years. But... Um, that doesn't mean that I'm suggesting at all that all these studios are going to sort of lie dormant. I think there's still a huge opportunity. The skill set's amazing. If we can get the right people trained up, the workforce available. There's a bit of a debate starting again about tax credits and whether they can put a bit, can a bit, bit more pressure on the government to make the tax credit even more attractive for international um, investment. And that would obviously go hand in hand with studio development. And I think also a lot of studio developments, you know, if it's on brownfield sites or if it's good you know if it's a if it's a, a stimulating local economies in different parts of the uk then obviously that's a, a fantastic benefit but it does need to be measured and that sort of just race for more and more studio space i think developers will be a little bit more cautious looking forward now thinking about appetite going forward uh, well, we will see. Uh, right, just enough time for the media quiz this week entitled Celeb Dac 2024. Yes, uh, your favourite long-running feature from the old BBC Three is back. Well, at least someone's created a website and we're using it to track celebrities. Uh, I'm in effect Paddy O'Connell and I'm going to name a celeb. You tell me why their stock has changed this week. It's okay. exciting. Um, you've got to buzz in with your name if you think you know the answer. So Charlotte, you will say... Charlotte. Chris, you will say... Chris. And Alex, you will say... Alex. Let's play Celeb Dac 2024. Stock in Carol Vorderman is up to £231 this week. Why? Charlotte. Charlotte. She's getting a Sunday afternoon show on LBC. Uh, yes, that's correct. She sort of got sacked slash quit uh, BBC uh, in Wales um, because she fell foul of uh, the social media guidelines. LBC very happy to jump on the Carol Vorderman bandwagon. I mean, she's very outspoken now, very political, and that's perfect for LBC. I mean, in her quote in the press release, it talks about how this is a major year for news. You know, we all know what she thinks about the news, but on LBC, that's fine because across the schedule, they've got a balance. So. And that's what they want. They want, um, they want Carol to cause some trouble. They yep. want a pal for James O'Brien, <laughs> as far as I can tell. That's their, that's their MO, good for them, you know. You've got to have different different perspectives, different voices. Yeah, I think she's a good hire for LBC. Right, question number two. Gary Lineker next. Uh, well, <laughs> we will see. That's a good story, Al. Uh, question number two. Stock in Ed Balls is down after what happened this week. Chris. Chris. Ed Balls has <laughs> kicked Susanna Reid in the head. Yes. But it's a bit, it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds. Not, but he sort of clipped her a little bit. Um, they were doing a feature, weren't they, on GMB about um, uh, airlines. You, airline, you know, when you go on a, yeah. a transport and someone puts their feet up on your armrest or something and you basically want to throw them out the plane. Um, they were kind of doing etiquette, airline etiquette, and I think Ed inadvertently. Booted, booted Su- let's let's ramp it up Al. <laughs> booted Susanna in the head it, it was it was a lovely Guardian headline which I think pretty much was Ed Balls it, kicked Susanna Reid in it the felt head. a bit like some of those race to the bottom clickbaity stories where you think you're going to get one thing and you're slightly disappointed um, would you argue that his podcast friend uh, George Osborne's stock is on the rise Alex Alex you can't just say your name an answer. A mirror discussion because obviously they, uh, the um, firm uh, where he's a partner has apparently been brought in to help advise uh, in the Telegraph deal yes and correct so people making connections with oh does that mean he's going to get another job this time at the Telegraph but I think that's a bit tenuous but 
Yeah. Uh, George Osborne's is very much enjoying himself, I feel, on uh, his uh, new podcast with Ed Balls. Um, and just enjoys... They're a good double act, I think. I think he just enjoys being a massive gossip. Yeah, he dropped the... He made a very bold prediction about the uh, date of the election. I think he said November 16th, not long ago. And, you know, yeah, I think that it's... Um, they got a stint on Have I Got News For You? I mm-hmm. think they've been picked up by that. So it's another... Um, it's a Perse- Persephonica production. What do I think? I think Ed Balls and Osborne, they've, they are a great double act. They've got great chemistry. They get on really well together. I mean, it's too white pale stale men talking to each other again one could argue but you know like Amos says I revere these chaps and um, you know let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. there could be um, they, they can certainly offer some insight and um, you know a bit of entertainment along the way uh, right question number three uh, John Oliver is up 2.9% why? We haven't done our homework, have no, we? No, we haven't. Do you John, know this? John Oliver up to, I love John Oliver So uh, I would give you a hint of awards Oh, did he win some Emmys, is he? I don't know. Yeah, he must have done. I just thought someone like Charlotte. Charlotte. <laughs> Charlotte. I think he won an Emmy. His show won an Emmy. Uh, he did. He won uh, for last week tonight. Uh, he also started thanking uh, the whole Liverpool squad uh, in his uh, thank you speech as he was gradually escorted off the stage. Um, which means uh, Charlotte is very much our winner of the quiz today. Uh, well done. As a prize, you get to work out the news investment structure to launch new local news services uh, around the country. Uh, you can report back next week. Congratulations. Um, uh, thanks to all our guests, uh, Chris Curtis, Alex Farber and Charlotte Tobit. Uh, where can people keep up with your work, uh, Chris? Uh, read Broadcast Magazine. Keep me in a job. Thank you. Uh, yes. And, and Alex? Uh, by the Times. Thank you. That's kind. Uh, and Charlotte? Uh, yeah. Read pressgazette.co.uk. Very, very easy. Uh, thank you all. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it from us today at the London Podcast Studios, one of the finest and most competitively priced studios in our capital city. Uh, Remember, you can get 25% off your first booking when you use the code MEDIAPOD at thelondonpodcaststudios.com. That's MEDIAPOD at thelondonpodcaststudios.com for 25% off. Uh, And if you're new to the show, why not hit follow in your podcast app of choice? Or uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube and watch the show in glorious Technicolor. Um, Plus, if you've got a question for next week's show, uh, why not send it to us via Spotify if you're listening in that. Uh, Open up this episode and you will see a box to tap, tap away. Uh, My name is Matt Deegan. The producers were Ollie Pitt and Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio production. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.